Downloads of this show are available on Potomatic.com and the Potomatic mobile app. Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan. And today with us is Ando, a um, Zen poet, temporary Zen poet, wandering in this forest and mountains, drifting like clouds, flowing like water. Uh, I'm just quoting from Patreon page, uh, patreon.com slash the and sway um spelled uh u-n-s-u-i um she's a, a lay punk mo- po- poet monk <laughs> in the same spirit of the ancients i was gonna say punk monk uh, i share the art she shares the art of stillness inspiration to stop be still breathe and be speaking of which i should take a moment now to breathe a little bit um her works are a meditation about the writing and reading of um her words and images are the expression of silence, stillness, the search for inner peace, and human relationship with nature. Great. Welcome. Welcome, Ando. Hi. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. So why don't we start with the question, uh, you know, Zen is sometimes used in popular culture in many ways, uh, you know, so many different ways we see the Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, Zen and the art of archery, and all these kinds of ways in which Zen uh, is used. Uh, what does Zen mean to you? And how is your training kind of giving you a deeper understanding of Zen? Okay, so first and foremost, for me, the first meaning of Zen is that of its uh, original linguistic meaning of meditation. Mm-hmm. And for me personally, then, that led me into the path of discovering Zen Buddhism. Um, but now it means a whole lot more. Or a whole lot less, maybe I should say. Yeah. Um, for me now, Zen, Zen just means truth. It means true reality. And it's like meditation is just um, a gateway to that. Yeah. yeah. And how does that stillness so or silence inform that truth? Or how does that help you inform that truth or get to that truth? I think because until we actually take the time to stop, to become still, and to just settle into that stopping and stillness, and to begin to be aware of the silence in which even stopping and stillness is happening. Mm -hmm. I think only then can we be helped by it. And it's only by that stopping that we we start to shift from just an attention-based way of life at best, at best. Mostly we live in a very scattered attention society now. Now everything is after a piece of our mind, a piece of our attention, a piece of our focus. Whereas awareness is the wide focus. It takes everything in. It leaves nothing out. Mm-hmm. But until we actually stop and develop some practice, to turn our attention inwards to its own root, its own source. And this is for me how the meditative path unfolded. And this leads us to the truer understanding of what Zen is pointing out. Yeah. So, and also you talk a little bit about, uh, in your, um, we talked a little bit about nature and the return to nature and the importance of being in nature and being connected to nature. If you talk a little bit about your experiences um, kind of with nature and how that informs this uh, practice. Yes. Um, on a personal level, I have a deep 
love of nature, a deep, deep love of nature. Um, on a practice-based level, what I've found is that to spend time practicing in nature, to spend time out in the wilds, out in some of the more barren landscapes, or even in tiny pieces of nature, like a patch of garden or a tree in the middle of a city, we can, we can get in touch with it through that. But I find that in the, the greater expanses, if you like, of three-kilometer beaches or um, vast moorlands or mountains, and some of the many places I've spent time, deep, deep forests, that I find that I myself, as an individual, shrinks, um, ultimately disappearing into nature, into that recognition that I'm just a, a speck of dust to nature. I'm, I'm nothing. I'm, I'm a piece of it. I'm not separate from it. I'm not responsible for it, not for all of it. I take responsibility for my corner of nature, if you like. Um, in the physical world. But in terms of practice, um, part of that recognition of true nature is that I am part of nature, I am part of life, I'm not apart from it. And so when I engage in nature-based practice, um, which informs a lot of my poetry, but um, as I think you're aware, the... The language carries another um, perfume also. Yeah, that's what I was going to talk about next. Um, in what ways, you, you know, you started this poetry practice and you uh, talked a little bit about your poetry practice and how that enhances or, or distills for others to communicate to others. Because ultimately, even though we kind of are informed by the stillness and silence, we want to be able to communicate, um, you know, using language to be able to bridge that gap. And I think that uh, the poetry definitely does that and we talk a little bit about your poetry practice and how that enhances your your abilities to understand truth. For me, poetry poetry is um, it's not so much something that I express as something that expresses through me. Um, again, it, it's this sense of nature, of truth, expressing through me, taking form in the shape of the poems. Um, I, I feel like um, a caretaker of, of those words and those poems. When they appear, I feel like a responsibility then to, to share them, um, for them to find a home in the world, for them to find ears to hear them. Um, and so the poetry as a practice actually originally, once again, rose out of Zen practice, that arose out of silent sitting. So I might be sitting, meditating, um, So I just disappeared back. I'm in the mountains of Crete now. Crete now, just saying that. Sitting meditating in the mountains of Crete. And then, as I actually come out of meditation, I would, in the end, I had to keep a notebook with me because words were coming um, to express something. And so these little haiku were taking form in that way. Um, and that continued to develop. And so, in a way, sitting practice and Haiku practice, they've actually become separate now, but they're the same thing, just in different forms. So the nature of my sitting practice, I'm sitting, I'm not moving my hands, 
silent, I'm still. Haiku might begin with that, and then there's a movement of the writing, because these words just come into that empty space that's that's grounded in the sitting. But now I, I actually, I don't sit down and think, okay, I'm going to write some haiku. I just, I just sit. I sit through the day. Um, you know, in the past I've meditated for many, many, many hours of the day. Now my whole day is a meditation. Every movement, every, if I'm just going shopping, it's a meditation. So even a poem can arise in the strangest of places, on the tube in London. I've had that happen, or in Italy, I think it was. Um, these these words that come to express this this true nature, if you like, um, can show up anywhere. Mm-hmm. So there isn't a formal sitting practice of poetry, and I never stress if I haven't written a poem, and yet barely a day goes by ever where a poem isn't written. Mm-hmm. It's so important um, with the um, you know sometimes many people fall into the trap of the ego driven. You know, I all about I, 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 and, you know, yeah. I, I have to create something. I have to create something unique. I have to create something in my voice. And, you know, I think that, <laughs> that yeah, just having that unique, fresh voice and that forced forced idea of, um, you know, and you, what I hear from what you're saying is that we understand that our true identity is one of dissolving the ego and dissolving into this ocean of bliss or ocean of uh, non non um how would you phrase it, or how would you say that? Ultimately, I don't even have to dissolve. Ultimately, I doesn't even have to dissolve. Ultimately, ego doesn't even have to dissolve because it's already part of the ocean. It's already made of the ocean. Mm-hmm. It's actually about relaxing the grip that, that tries to pull that ocean into a drop and an ocean. You know, it's, it's about relaxing the grip that tries to separate, that tries to cre- create a duality. Mm-hmm. Um, when we actually let go, or I mean, you hear the term surrender, for example, quite often in spiritual circles, and people think it's some kind of groveling on the floor, kind of, I give everything to you. and It's, it's not this. It's purely to surrender is just, you know, what, hands in the air, let go, open palms, trust. And to realize that, yeah, I'm not a drop in the ocean. I'm, an ocean. I'm the ocean in a drop. Is that Rumi? I have a terrible memory for all things related to Dharma and poetry. It's quite funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so interesting, uh, you know, that to think about, um, you know, like a lot of times this self-grasping or this idea of, you know, in Buddhism, they, I believe they term it as self-grasping kind of, you know, and I, I, a lot of times people say, oh, you know, you learn it little by little. But I find that little by little versus the sudden release, you know, that, that, that you know, momentary sudden release where, you know, it just happens all at once. And you're kind of, um, you know, in my experience in meditation, sometimes I'll like have a momentary, you know, just release of bliss. And these moments are in form, you know, and then, you know, obviously it returns, you know, you kind of cling to this identity. And, and I've had experiences of clinging to the, you know, we all have these experiences of clinging to this ego-driven reality. But I do find in that meditation that it does help a lot to have experiences and, and, and develop those, cultivate those experiences of um, kind of seeing something that's already there, you know. 
So uh, yes, we might we might call them a glimpse. Glimpses mm-hmm. is, is a good term for them. Yeah. So they used to be a very good example. My first Zen master gave me, which was um, it's like you have a paper screen like they have in Japan um, for room dividers, and you might get first just poke a needle through it, and then you might get your little finger through it, and you know the glimpses are like this, and you're peeping through this pinhole. But then eventually you might get a few fingers through it or a hand and then eventually an arm and your whole body and then there's no screen and you see there wasn't actually a screen to begin with. The screen is just, the mind creates the screen or the separation. Mm-hmm. And so actually what we glimpse, it, it, it's there all the time. And it's only our belief in that separation and our, in a way, sometimes it can be also a, a fear of, accepting and, and trusting oneself completely to that. Yeah. Sometimes we talk, we talk, we talked a little bit about visualizations and, and, you know, in traditionally in the way I was taught growing up was, you know, the imagination and visualization had to do with, you know, making up stuff or generating, you know, when, when, uh, I don't know, when JK Rowling was writing Harry Potter, for example, you know, she had to create this whole other world in some ways, you know, and kind of, um, invent all these characters but in, in meditation visualization has to do with seeing and my understanding is if you talk a little bit about visualizations and how seeing the truth and seeing how things are truly are um and how visualization plays into that um i don't use any visualization mm-hmm. whatsoever in my practice i haven't used visualization since um probably 2007 oh wow yeah um when i use i used it as a practical tool for my well-being, I would use it now. If, if someone came to me for help who was sick or in pain, I might use um, visualization as a tool in that situation. Mm-hmm. But from a point of spiritual practice, um, I can see where it comes in in some traditions. For example, um, I spent some years studying in the Tibetan tradition, and that's very much a visualization-based practice. There's a, there's a lot of visualization in that. You know, we visualize various Buddhas. We we self-generate. We visualize ourselves becoming a particular Buddha or a particular Bodhisattva, and then um, in that self-generation, we embody that Buddha. We embody their best features and aspects. Um, and that's a bit like how an athlete uses visualization. It's very practical, actually. You know, in an athlete visualizes succeeding and winning a race or performing at a certain level um, you know they'll run run through it in their mind first and and I think in certain types of Buddhism it takes that form it's it's a way of tricking the mind because they say that when you visualize then um, your mind doesn't know the difference between the fake and the real it doesn't know the difference between dreaming and awake when you're dreaming mm-hmm. and so I guess it functions on that same level. But for myself personally, 2018, I haven't used any practice like that um, formally since 2007. Um, I do still have in the background a kind of distant Tibetan um, practice of Vajrasattva meditation and mantra recitation, um, which seems to have carried with me through, I'll talk about lifetimes. (laughs) But, um, you know, that that's almost a naturally arising one. Or if one was speaking on behalf of a particular lineage or teacher, then 
for example, I led meditations in a, a temple for a particular Tibetan tradition one time. And on that occasion, I would bring the lineage teacher and the, the teacher's teacher and the root teacher of that lineage to my heart for their teachings to speak through me. There's never a sense of I'm here saying this or doing that. And so in that aspect, then uh, yet again, a visualization is, it's like a quick a quick um, door. It's like taking a, a door into something instead of walking right around the building to go mm -hmm. in. It's a quick entry point into um, carrying those teachings. Like a shortcut or so, a, I think they call the quick path. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good. Where, whereas in my own Zen practice, it, I, I, I'm, I haven't got any for I haven't got any forms or structures or what forms or structures do I have now? In my own little experience with Zen, um, you know, a lot of times in the meditations they do the the bowing and the, and the walking meditations. They have very kind of yeah. what you might call strict um, body forms. So you know, kind yeah. of bowing and all this kind of thing. Is that something you engage with or? something I have done over the years. I was um, training as a Zen teacher um, for some time. And during that time, it was very important that we studied the liturgy and the practices and the rituals and the framework in which Zen is presented. Um, so yes, I've engaged. I spent time on Sashin doing seven-day sits, um, which actually then in independent practice, if you like, I've exceeded. Um, Kinhin, walking meditations, yes, again, I've, I've done in both Soto and uh, Rinzai traditions of Zen. And um, I'm lay ordained in both traditions, so I've, I've got an understanding of the, the ritual aspects of both. But um, once again, I came to a point through my own, I can't say practice, practice became practice became retreat retreat became life it came full circle back to life but with all of that practice and retreat embodied into it every moment every breath and and so now i might take a form i might i mean i'm i'm sat here now and i can see i've got a buddha head in front of me and i have two singing bowls of different tones uh I'll make incense offerings or light candles or place flowers. In fact, I've done all of that here. Um, but I do it with a lightness of heart now, a lightness of touch. I don't do it with any sense of trying to attain anything from doing it. It's more like a, a, nice, um, a nice practice that can cookie-cutter cases. And so I think it's about helping students, disciples, seekers to lose their preconceptions and to not allow them to hook on to preconceptions, which is why we have the term um, the finger pointing to the moon with reference to the Buddha, but also with the reference to many Zen teachers and also teachers in um, Vedanta and Abhaita. Many teachers will use it, even Christian mystic teachers I've heard use it. And, you know, that I'm just the finger pointing to the moon don't mistake the finger for the moon. Mm. You know, don't get caught up with the guru, the teacher, um, what they're doing. You know, if, you're, if your teacher eats chicken, even though your tradition isn't meant to, then eating chicken isn't going to awaken. 
No. <laughs> and yet you might become awake and eating a piece of chicken, but there's no connection. Yeah. It's like that. It could be anything. You know, it's a ridiculous example, but it's it can be anything. And it can be any moment. And it can be not a moment at all, you know, because in Zen, um, there are the two sort of approaches of uh, Rinzai is very much about uh, sudden awakening, sudden enlightenment, and the whole, you know, as a Rinzai student, you, you can be pushed quite quite hard towards, um, you know, this whole thing of sudden enlightenment. And in Soto, there's much more the subtle, the more gradual approach. Both are just frameworks, again. They're just examples that there is no hard and fast rule. Um, then you go to Abaita, and, you know, again, both both are demonstrated as could could be the case, and neither, or so any shade in between. Mm. So you see why if teachers give examples, then they're, you know, in a way it's more like putting a pin on a map. It doesn't show you the whole country. It just shows you one aspect or one one point in time even. Yeah, I know I heard the definition of a Buddha as being the the combination of wisdom and power. So I think it's interesting to think about that. Um, wisdom and power. Yeah, the ability. Okay. I, I understand there was something like um, the ability to change things or the ability to, like, when, when you have the power to be able to um, act and do things, then you also have the combination of wisdom to know how to act and how to change things and how to, um, so that's an, a fully enlightened being, I think I heard. Uh, in, uh, I'm not, don't quote me, but I'm pretty sure Kanampa taught me this, that, you know, that the combination of wisdom and power and the combination of the ability to act in the world and to do it with wisdom, you know? And uh, what do you think about that? I've I've not heard it phrased in that way. My understanding Mm. is wisdom and compassion. Yeah. Or in in other traditions, you might hear it called truth and love. Truth means wisdom. Mm. Love means, means compassion. Same thing. Yeah. So, but let's 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 say if it was wisdom and compassion, and actually, that it's actually the the two together that I suppose gives that power. Yeah. And that how how I learnt um, Buddhism, Zen again in particular, I can speak to more than any other tradition. Yeah. Um, that wisdom and compassion are like two wings of a bird. Oh, of course. Yeah. And without without one then, you know, we're a one-winged bird and we're not going to be able to take off, we can't fly, we're hopping around in circles. And it doesn't matter whether we've just got a wing of wisdom or just a wing of compassion, neither will serve us on their own. And what I learned in um, Abaita from um, an Abaitan teacher of mine was that, and then I referred it back to Zen and found the same to be true in Zen, so we can say this, that it doesn't actually matter which arises first. It won't be the same. There isn't a sequence of if one develops wisdom first, which mm. let's say wisdom is true knowledge, knowledge of the truth, true understanding of reality. Then if that arises first, it's useless to us on its own. But from the full realization of wisdom, compassion naturally and spontaneously arises. So it completes the circle, it completes the wings of the bird. The same is true with compassion, love, bhakti, if you're in in the Indian traditions. And that, um, again, if 
if we follow the path of devotion as our first focus instead of the path of wisdom and knowledge, then at the point where we fully give ourselves to devotion, where we fully surrender everything to that love, most often it's in in point of uh, reference to a teacher or to Jesus Christ or the Buddha. You know, one one could develop that level of um, devotional love. Out of that, in its completion, will arise spontaneously wisdom. Yeah. But the two are totally intrinsically connected, mm. and so. We have knowledge and we have compassion. We have knowledge, we have understanding. And so with that completeness, we, we can act, we can act where sometimes the most compassionate thing to say to one student or disciple, if you listen to recordings of teachers with their students, can be very different from what they would say in answer to the same question to another. Yeah, I heard and the analogy. that understanding. But the term power, as as you describe, I've not I've not heard it used like that. Oh. Um, I would say the power arises out of that wholeness, that completion. But it's such a tricky word, eh? Yeah, <laughs> the ability to act. I think I was meaning like sometimes we find that uh, you know in, in in the circles, you know, that people are marginalized and 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 you know kind of under the influence of others and and. Um, Yes. And not able to really be their true selves and act in their true way because of this kind of function in society of um, kind of forcing loudness and forcing overpowering and overbearing and, and our abilities to, to act in the world and do things effectively, yeah. Yes. So, uh, so now the next question is about, we talked a little bit about other traditions and other schools. You know, when you have your main practice, um, how how is your... Um, you know, we talked a little bit about how dissolving frameworks, but um, if you talk a little bit about other traditions and how they've kind of informed your uh, schools of thought, your, your ability to find truth. and um... Yes, sure. I mean, my, my own history is I was brought, brought up to age, I guess, 17, 18 as a Roman Catholic. So I have that kind of, that was my spiritual education, my grounding, um, which I met the world. Um, I then entered into Zen Buddhism. I later spent a period of time um, still qualifying myself as a Zen Buddhist, but studying with Tibetan Buddhists. Um, at heart, I don't seem to be able to get away from that Zen term, although that's changing actually now, I would say. Um, but what I found along the way then is I've studied with um, Tibetan Buddhist teachers, um, the Bun, the Pun, tradition, B-O-N, with a, I think it's a diphthong they call it over it, which is the original tradition of Tibet prior to Buddhism arriving. Um, so actually my my very first spiritual teacher in person was from the Pun tradition. And I still remember a very powerful thing he said to all of us that day, which was, he, he was speaking here in the West, in the UK, and he, he said, you, you're all from a Christian country. If you just took your Ten Commandments and actually lived them, you wouldn't need to be here listening to me. <laughs> and, and it was such a good teaching because it really made everyone go, oh, wow, he's right. You know what? I'm looking for some set of rules to live my life by and some guidance. And, and like what he's saying is you are, you've already had your guidance. You're just not wanting to follow it. So now you're going looking for some other guidance. And eventually you're going to turn around and do the same with it if you don't actually step into the guidance and 
endeavor to live in. And so that was a very powerful way to be introduced then to another faith. And then it was like, that said, I can introduce you to mantra practice. It was very much a mantra-based practice and very much, very much visualization-based, which is where the origin of the visualizations used in Tibetan Buddhism seem to arise, is from the Pun tradition. So I spent some time studying with him. Um, I then entered the Kadampa tradition. Again, continuing Zen practice, actually, but also I, I was a practicing Kadampa uh, I received my first spiritual name in the Kadampa tradition um, from Geshe Kaosan Gyatso, the um, spiritual founder of that tradition. Um, I did a little teaching and leading prayers for world peace with them, um, taught in a temple for them later. And then I left that behind fully for Zen and actually... I entered what was um, a period of maybe five years of just being back where I was with doing my daily practice, which was coming from Zen. It was informed by Zen and Tibetan Buddhism. Traveling, um, I've been nomadic since 2007, and although I kind of had the idea it would be quite nice to have a home now. It hasn't shown up yet, or the facilities to engage with one haven't shown up. So... I began what was called the Zen Road Trip, which was just my partner and I traveling in a, a V-Dub camper van um, with the statement, I don't know what we're looking for. I don't even know if we're looking for something, but if we are, then we we won't know until we find it. That was it. Mm. It was just, it was a movement. It was a, it was a very spontaneous movement. It wasn't something that was sat down and planned for. It just started happening. And it was during my time on that journey then that um, I realized that I needed to engage more fully with a teacher and a tradition and a practice. And it came because I was teaching people meditation. People would come to me and ask me to teach them to meditate. And I was actually building websites and there was a professional photographer at the time and blogging for many years. And just suddenly the kind of message kept appearing to me, you need to train as a meditation teacher. You need to train as a meditation teacher. You need some kind of authenticity. You need some tradition behind you. You need something that's more helpful to other people. And it wouldn't go away. I tried everything to look away from it, turn away from it, and it wouldn't go away. And so I started searching, and I found my first Zen master um, who was training people in Zen meditation and mindfulness practices but in insight and well-being and uh, I signed up my, my web design clients paid my funding actually I, I had no money to pay for it so I, I did a fundraiser it was when I first stepped into donation-based living um, and I did a promo uh, inviting my clients to take part in a very special offer to help me train as a Buddhist meditation teacher um, and within five days, I was all paid up and I started uh, making arrangements to train. And having met him, um, that really changed everything at that point because I'd been searching for a Zen master all my life until that point and it became quite clear. And then suddenly I had one. Mm -hmm. And so I spent um, time 
studying with him, training with him. I felt the the wish to train as a Zen teacher, which, funnily enough, I no longer have the wish to be a, a teacher of any sort, let alone Zen. Um, even though I speak in Zen terms most of the time. And from being with him, I learned about self-inquiry, the who am I practice, which is also found in Atma Vishara with Ramana Maharishi. Um, but it's also present very much so in Zen. Um, and so I was first introduced to that. And I was introduced to a fellow called uh, Banke Zenji, who was a Zen master. And in fact, he also taught in a very direct path manner. He didn't teach to sit. Bankai Zenji, who lived in uh, about 500 years ago, would say he sat for 20 years, 25 years before he awakened. And his teaching when he awakened was don't sit. <laughs> it was you can see what's here already, right now. You're already a Buddha. There's nothing that you need to attain that you don't already have. And so he was giving talks, which were question and answer talks. And I, I was driven to find a living teacher of um, Bankai's Zen. And that took me off on a completely new adventure, which is where I met Abaita. Um, and I became a disciple of Muji, who's here in Portugal, actually, to the north of me. And... Um, I went to a silent retreat with him and then spent several years at his ashram um, and living nearby in service to him and the community um, and learning in that environment of living in the forest, living in a hut, living in a tent. That was about the limit of it. Houses didn't come into it then. Really. And my life became full-time um, about this search, about the quest. For this same thing as Bankei's NG had. So it wasn't, um, and I just felt the closest thing I could find was there. And it, it very much felt its presence. And then I discovered, lo and behold, that he also taught the who am I, the self-inquiry, which was the only other thing that I took from my Zen training that I felt was of high value to me. So these two elements came together in that environment. Um, and then from there, I progressed on. I had another teacher who, who was a disciple of him, um, and I assisted in his community, which is an online community, Ananta. Um, so that lasted probably a year or two, which overlapped. Uh, and what it was was I, I could access those teachings live if, if I wasn't at, at the ashram or if I wasn't in the area. So that was really helpful at the time. So day and night might... You know, my practice was day and night then. So I, what I'm also hearing is, um, you yeah. know, that the, the analogy of the Dharma being like medicine and that when the time comes, when you have a specific, um, you know, calling or a specific need, that, that, that the Dharma will come to you and then you kind of are able to use it as an antidote for that specific time and place. You know, the different times in your life, you need different teachings, you need different um, aspects of the teachings, you need to embody different learnings and yeah. Yeah, it's a storehouse, isn't it? I know, I know in um, Tibetan Buddhism, you know, they teach the storehouse of Dharma. And mm. for me, it's like Dharma is such an encompassing term because I take, I don't take Advaita separate from Zen. I, 
I actually, I leave all the differences aside and I go with the core. And the common core is where I reside. Mm. Um, again, I went to an even more um, focused core for a time for a couple of years after that with my teacher Ganga. And then what happened for me was that that storehouse um, became a, a realm of discovery. And now I'm discovering a strong affinity with the works of the Christian mystics mm. um, and also the writings of Thomas Merton, who explored Asian um, Buddhism, particularly Zen, very, very much. Um, and in fact, I think he, some of his final words, not so many months before he died, was that the future of Christianity is Zen. He wasn't saying that Christians would become Zen Buddhists. What he was saying was that the practices of Zen um, were of value. And actually, you know, what I've discovered now is that there's a whole contemplative tradition um, in Christianity, and particularly with the mystics. Um, so I'm talking about Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, um, Hildegard of Bingen, and, the, and a particular text which had a profound impact on my life, which is the Cloud of Unknowing, which I discovered through my Zen teacher. Um, and again, the Cloud of Unknowing is the essential contemplative text. It's the essential instructions on how to meditate in Christianity. Mm. And it's really very little known. And actually part of my own writing work at the moment is an exploration of that from a Zen perspective. And I can't even put it into words right now, but it's a project that's um, sort of going on in my notebooks and journals at the moment. Mm -hmm. But I, I did a seven-week retreat on it um, at a certain point back in 2015. That was a turning point for me in my life. Um, mm -hmm. And now I find myself Many of my, as you say, spiritual friends, my um, community, if you like, are people of all traditions who are at the root. We say rather than, um, we're not all taking paths up the mountain. There's this model where we're all taking different paths up, up the one mountain and the top of the mountain is the same place. We're just taking different paths up. But what I've discovered is that there's another model whereby actually we're all coming from the same route. And our goal isn't to climb a mountain, it's actually to return to that route. Yeah. And I've only discovered that in finding myself in that common route. Yeah. And so people like Mirabai Star um, would share about this. She's a good person to uh, get that understanding from. Um, people like James Finley, Father Thomas Keating. Um, there are many teachers out there who can kind of guide people who are interested in that but it's so in a way my yeah my heart's passion now is that yes I can say I'm a, if someone asked me to define myself the easiest thing is for me to say I'm a Zen Buddhist mm -hmm. because it's it's the common factor it's it might be how I dress I occasionally still sit and wear a rakasu I still possess a mala and occasionally use it I still have a singing bowl I have Buddha heads but um I do also have other icons in my home. And the practice, it, it's, it's, it's before religion arises. No, true contemplation is before any label or definition arises. 
And so the goal of meditative practice, if you like, isn't to become Buddha or Christ. It's to become a Buddha or a Christ. Mm. You're returning Um, to the source, source energy and the the origins I'm getting from what you're saying, yeah. Returning to where we came from. Yes, so it's like our common source, our common ground, our common origin. Um, and all the meditative practices that I've pursued o- over the years have all ultimately taken me on quite a path initially from quite mental practices, following the breath, counting the breath, um, awareness practices, insight practices, all the way to practices that are purely turning the attention to the root from which it arises, which is awareness. And this, this root isn't like some singular point. This root has no edge to it. It has no boundary to it. It's, it contains all things. Hence, it contains all faiths. It contains all practices. Um, so in that, I can't say moment, but let's use that word for a moment so I can keep speaking. So in that moment when one turns, um, and returns to that root, then yes, there is no practice, there is no faith, there is no I and ocean. Mm. Um, there is no path. Where 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 would I go? Mm. Where would I go? So, as and we... so for me, um, this is where the this is where the poetry arises from. This is what speaks in the poetry so it's not me trying to express something about it in fact if I ever find it it's very uncommon now but if I ever find something that I've written that looks like a me trying to express something or to write about something in that way unless it's journaling which is more about my own search if you like then I throw it out I delete it but I have to say I haven't thrown anything out in quite some time. But uh, there was a period of time where there, there was a selection where I was like, no, no, and I wrote that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and where I knew it to be true and not, not touched by me, then that was what I would share. So as we start to wind down, uh, why don't we listen yes. to... We, and I understand you have a collection of poetry you're hoping to print as you're working towards printing and uh, people can find out more at patreon.com slash the institute and sway uh, yes. E-U-N-S-U-I and um, why don't we do a reading from and you, you, we discussed that doing it three times since they're very short poems yes. um, so we'll do one reading and then we'll start to close up okay so if you can select a poem and then uh, we'll take a moment okay Take a moment of silence. Hidden in an empty field, 10,000 unborn flowers. Hidden in an empty field. 10,000 unborn flowers. 
hidden in an empty field. Ten thousand unborn flowers. Thank you, thank you. Thanks so much for being here, and um, we're going to wrap up. I'm going to play you. some. Thank you, and this is Radio Free Brooklyn, the Truth to Power show. I'm going to be playing some um, tracks from uh, you know various chantings and um, uh, prayers and Zen prayers and such uh, after this. So please stay tuned, and then. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I'll end the interview now because I have to. So this is our final pre-record, uh, and then we get the show goes live on Labor Day. Uh, at 8 in the morning on and from then on Mondays at 8 in the morning from then on uh, from Labor Day on uh, Mondays at 8 in the morning so I hope uh, our listeners will tune in um, starting on Labor Day 8 in the morning um, on Radio Free Brooklyn thanks so much for being here thank you thank you take care Radio Free Brooklyn is also proud to announce that we have been partially funded to start an after school program for local teenagers in 2019 However, a grant will only pay for so much, and we still have a long ways to go to make sure this dream becomes a reality. The after-school program will allow teens from Brooklyn to uh, learn about media, and uh, using a hands-on approach, they will be guided by local professionals currently working in radio and journalism. Each participant will create their own radio show, which will air in Radio Free Brooklyn on a new dedicated stream. We'd love for our listeners to help make this program happen by going to radiofreebrooklyn.org slash after school, reading, uh, reading more about the program and donating whatever you can afford. Remember that Radio Free Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit community organization, and each donation is tax deductible to the full extent of the law. Again, that URL is radiofreebrooklyn.org/afterschool. Thank you so much, and remember that uh, giving is a, one of the major tenets of Buddhism and a, a practice that will help all of you. Uh, just always try to give, 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 and give your attention, and we appreciate you giving us our attention for this um, broadcast. And uh, starting on Labor Day, once again, uh, Truth to Power show will be going live every Monday at 8 a.m. Thank you so much, and now I'm going to be playing um portion of the Heart Sutra, followed by some chanting of the mantra of Avalokiteshvara, the Buddha of Compassion. Please enjoy this recording, and hope to... Have you as a listener starting Mondays at 8 a.m. on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org. Thank you.
Amen. Mm-hmm. 